So I've just read the Christmas story from Matthew's gospel. Um, There are three primary characters in, in Matthew's account of the Christmas story. There is the Holy Spirit. There's Jesus and there's Joseph. The way Matthew tells this historical account through literary artistry, he gives us three primary characters. And it's through these characters that he's communicating his kind of theology of what's going on in the story of God with the birth of Christ. Now, I wish we had time to take each of these characters Um, At first, I thought the sermon could cover all three. We'll get to the end of one, and uh, I'll still have some to answer to for how long I go. So, I've had such a wonderful week studying this passage and praying for you. And praying through this passage for you and for our church. And as I've done this, my heart, time and time again, has been brought back. And my imagination, and my my thoughts, and my prayers... To Joseph and to what God is saying to us through Joseph and how God is opening up his story to us through Joseph in this situation. Now, the primary characteristic of Joseph in this passage, the narrator names it and his behavior demonstrates it. Did anybody catch it? He's just my Bible. Joseph was a just man, not willing to divorce her, not willing to bring her to open shame. Matthew chapter 1 verse 19. Some of your Bibles probably translate this righteous, dikaios, it's the Greek word. It can be translated just or righteous or upright. And it's not just what the narrator says about him. As I said, it's also the way he behaves. Look at verse 18. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Now, here's how it worked. When a girl reached puberty, typically between the ages of 12 and 14, her parents arranged a marriage. And at that point, she's betrothed. Now, in their culture, betrothal, what we call engagement, was very serious. In fact, there were only three ways to end an an engagement. One of you could die. In which case, the survivor was a widow. By law and in the eyes of society. Now, what does that mean? That means when you're engaged, it's legal, right? A second way you could end an engagement was a more pleasant way. You could get married. Which would bring the engagement to a conclusion. And the marriage part, the wedding, would would shift you into the part of the marriage where you live together. Those were the only two, well, those were two options. The third option was divorce. To end an engagement in this culture, short of death or marriage, the only other option was divorce. So do you see how they're looking at engagement? It's a different thing for them. You didn't just break off the engagement. You had to legally get divorced. Now, when Joseph learns that Mary is pregnant, they're engaged. 
In different parts of Israel, an engagement functioned in different ways. In Galilee, where they are, a lot of historical and archaeological evidence has come out over the last 50 years. Engaged people in Galilee, they were much more conservative than in Judea. In Galilee, an engaged couple was never allowed to be alone. Never. Not ever. So Mary's pregnant. So Joseph knows who's not the father. Joseph is not the father. Now at this point, Joseph had only two options. Legally. And don't think of that by legally as some external technical thing that the IRS that you don't like. No, the law was the Torah. It was the Old Testament. It was the religious rules. He had only two options. A public divorce or a private divorce. Those were his only options when his wife has committed adultery. Now, the first option, a public divorce, would mean that Joseph goes to court and there's a public trial. And the outcome would be disgrace for Mary in an honor-shame culture. This is a big deal, right? The outcome is for this 12 to 14-year-old girl to be exposed as an adulteress. It would not have only ended her marriage with Joseph. It It would have ruined her chance for ever marrying Which is a horrible fate in an economically male-centered society where a woman's life depends upon her attachment to a man. Option one. Option... Oh, and, and one more catch. This option was profitable for Joseph on two levels. One, it vindicated his honor. Right? Because now publicly, what, is the, what does the community know? They know one man that didn't cause this divorce. Because the trial would have had to have proven that. So Joseph would have maintained his honor as a righteous man. He could have gone on to marry somebody else's child in town. Because here was a righteous man. The second way that a public trial would have profited Joseph is economically. First of all, he would get the bride price back. At engagement, he paid a price. He paid a fee that he had been saving since he was around 12 or 13 or 14. Since he entered puberty, at puberty, you're considered an adult, you work, and you begin to acquire the means whereby you'll pay the bride price. The second way, he would have, so he would have gotten that back so that he could marry somebody else now. The second way he would have profited economically is her dowry would be surrendered to him. And her dowry is all the assets she brings into a marriage. Now, this is quite a deterrent to committing adultery. In that culture, if you commit adultery, no matter what age you are, all of your assets in the marriage are surrendered to your spouse. Do you see how this would push back against adultery? There was no such thing as no-fault divorce. Whose fault is it? The other person gets everything. Joseph had those two benefits by law. Option two. A private divorce. In this case, Joseph himself draws up a bill of divorce, calls upon two or three witnesses without a trial, signs the document. And by doing this, he minimizes Mary's shame because it's only two or three people witnessing. Now the rest of the community doesn't know what happened. But he gives up two things if he does that. He gives up his honor and he gives up any access to the bridal price or the dowry. Joseph, being a just man, he's going to do the right thing, decided not to expose her to open shame. 
Now in a culture, these, in that culture, these were Joseph's only two options. And look at the last half of verse 19. Unwilling to put Mary to shame, he resolved to divorce her quietly. It's huge. This is a 18 to 20 year old. This is a teenager. Of the options in front of him, he chose the one that disadvantaged himself. Even when he was in the right. In order to advantage Mary. This is compassion. This is mercy. This is righteousness. Compassion is righteousness. When we act with compassion, we are acting in a righteous way. But that's not all there is to Joseph's righteousness. Joseph, a righteous, dikaios, a a just man in his compassion. But there's more. Now, after Joseph makes this difficult choice, he goes to sleep. Now, that's a very natural comment, isn't it? Can you imagine him? His whole world has been shattered. He's laid awake for days trying to figure out what to do. Have you ever been in such a situation and you're just worn out and you finally just pass out? Right? Right? Is it a good sleep? No, it's not a good sleep. It's a fitful sleep you can see this situation and he has a dream and in this dream God speaks to him through an angel and what does God say he says Joseph as impossible as it is to believe what Mary told you was true she's a virgin the power of the Holy Spirit put within her the Christ she did not betray you She has not had intercourse with anyone. And then God commanded Joseph to do three things. Number one, do not fear. Number two, take Mary as your wife. And number three, take the child as your son. See, naming a child was the way you claimed a child. On the eighth day, the man named the child. That's the way the man, either through biology or adoption, claimed a child as his own. Because you got this problem in the story, right? Eight, 17 verses of a genealogy establishing the genealogy through Joseph. And then you discover Joseph didn't even the daddy. Right? This is a problem for how Jesus can be the son of Joseph and the son of David and all of this. And so on one level, we're just seeing how their culture, it didn't matter if you adopted someone or not. They were fully your child. It solves that problem. But on another level, Jesus, the angel of God, God was pushing Joseph and say, don't just marry her. Take the child as your own. So what is everybody in that community going to think when he names that child? He was unrighteous in the engagement. No wonder he didn't divorce her. What every other holy and righteous person would have done. It's so important that the angel starts out with do not fear. They both sealed their own shame in this course of action. Now, look at verse 24. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife and he named his son. That's the last word about Joseph. The first word about Joseph is he's just. The last word is he's obedient. The first word is he's compassionate. The last word is he's obedient. This is righteousness. 
And this is Joseph's mode of operation. All through chapter 1 and 2, Joseph never says a word. There is no word coming out of Joseph's mouth in the first two chapters of Matthew's gospel. There's only action. There's only difficult situation. Followed by difficult situation, followed by difficult situation, followed by difficult situation. God speaking to him and him obeying God over and over and over. Obedience is his hallmark. Prompt, simple, unspectacular obedience. This is righteousness. Obeying God is righteousness. Joseph is a picture I was struck this week of Micah 6.8. What does the Lord require of you? Do justice, love compassion, and walk humbly with your God. This is what Matthew leads his gospel with. Is a living, breathing embodiment of Micah's succinct summary of the life that pleases God. Here is Joseph in the complicated and difficult issue of his life, doing justice, loving kindness, walking humbly with God. What a beautiful example of the vertical dimension of righteousness in its sensitivity to the will of God and the horizontal dimension of righteousness in its sensitivity to other people. It's all playing out right here. In Joseph, here was a man who made the choice to know and to follow God's law so often that it became a habit. That it shaped his heart. That when he was put in a situation where his heart showed itself, it's a heart of obedience and compassion. He was a righteous man. Now, why is this so important? It's important because righteousness pleases God. This is one of the most fundamental teachings in the Bible. God delights in righteous behavior. Now this doesn't in any way mean that you can be good enough to make up for your sins and to get them forgiven through your goodness. We're not talking about that. Obedience cannot produce forgiveness. We still need forgiveness. If I had time to talk about Jesus' two names, God saves, God with us, we could talk about how right here in this story we have both righteousness and faith. We have justification by faith and we have the obedience of faith. They're all right there. But this morning we're just zooming in on this one issue of how obedience is a primary character trait of Joseph and how this rises up to God and pleases God. This morning, our job is to listen for God's address through his portrait of Joseph. And what do we see? A righteous man, a man who pleases God through difficult, courageous, habitual acts of justice, compassion, and obedience. And in fact, we'll see over the next several months as we continue to walk through Matthew's gospel between now and Pentecost. Matthew chapter 1 all the way through Matthew 7. We're going to see that one of Matthew's primary agendas in writing this gospel is to teach us to live the ethical life that Jesus lived. It's not just to teach us to have faith in Jesus. It's to teach us to obey like Jesus. 
Now, this is so important. <laughs> look, at the, look at the next to last sentence in Matthew's gospel. He starts with this and he ends with it. What is the last, next to last sentence in Matthew's gospel? Jesus says to his followers that as they make converts, teach them to observe all that I've commanded you. That's where he starts obeying God. That's where he ends his gospel, obeying God. Obedience to God pleases God. This was the la- Matthew was one of those disciples that heard that from Jesus' lips. One of his parting shots, teach everybody to obey. So Matthew, years later, writes the story of Jesus' life. And his agenda is not just to get you to believe in Jesus, but to imitate Jesus. To practice his standard of what is ethical and what is right and what is true and good. And so Matthew, when he goes to write his gospel, he starts his gospel with the parting shot of Christ. And what was the last sentence, by the way, of Matthew's gospel? And lo, I'm with you to the end of the earth. And what is the first part of his gospel? Jesus' name, Emmanuel, God with us. So Matthew starts his gospel the way he's going to end his gospel. The last thing Jesus told him to do, when Matthew's vocation of a gospel writer, that's his vocation, when he begins to do it, he puts that command of Jesus into practice in the way he writes his gospel. And being a good Jewish teacher that Matthew was, Like other Jewish teachers, Matthew loved to teach not only by direct propositions, but by using examples. Joseph is here as an example. An example of righteous behavior. That's what's foregrounded. Not his faith in Jesus. Important? Absolutely. Fundamental? Absolutely. Just not the right sermon from this passage. This passage is the way he behaved. What about you? Are you righteous? Is your behavior righteous? Micah 6.8 is the only way to make sense of Joseph's behavior. Is Micah 6.8 the only way to make sense of your life? Is that your epitaph? What does the Lord require of you? Do justice, love mercy and compassion, and walk in humble obedience, humility with your God. So what I want to do for the last part of the sermon is I want to take a lead from Matthew's literature. And let's just work these into our lives. Let's do with scripture what James tells us to do, right? The epistle of James says use scripture as a mirror. Look in it. And let it pierce your life. Let's look into this story. And let's look at our life. Through the lens of Joseph's life. Let's take the issue. Of the righteousness. Of compassion. Do you give others. Kindness. And compassion. Even. When it will bring disadvantage to you. Do you. Are there areas in your life right now where you have a choice between several right options? And you are choosing the compassionate option even though it disadvantages you. 
Well, let's take Joseph's example even further. What about in your own family? So that's where he plays it out. Are you treating your family members with mercy and compassion? Anybody can be merciful on a mission trip. Anybody can be merciful to strangers. Well, most anybody. But what about the person that holds your heart in their hand and can cut you the deepest? And not only can, but does continually. So that's what he's done. I mean, his act of compassion is in the crucible of family. That's where we see his righteousness coming through. And isn't this one of the most difficult places to be compassionate and merciful? Teenagers, isn't it difficult to be compassionate and merciful with your siblings? And to continually disadvantage yourself for their advantage, even when you are right. Husbands and wives, can it get any harder? When you're fighting and you're in the spiral... Oh, yeah, it's one thing to just stop being mean, but it's another thing entirely to step back into the relationship with an aggressive act of kindness. That's righteousness. When your spouse hurts you, what comes out of you? When you've been betrayed and mistreated, your behavior flows out of your character, which is the fruit of your heart. Are there some of us in this room and we need to repent? Because time and time again, we choose right without compassion. Now, obviously, the devil's in the details. I'm not talking about a prescription for how to handle abuse. If you're being abused, please talk to someone. Those of you who know me know that's not what I'm talking about. Don't let that become your excuse to stop looking into the mirror of God's word. Because there are a thousand injustices before abuse that should be responded to in compassion and mercy. Parents, what about how you treat your children? Are you tender and compassionate and merciful even when you're right and they are wrong? Now, all of us, what about how we treat our own parents? It gets a little more, it doesn't get any easier, teenagers, when you become adults. Teenagers learn now how to respond in mercy and compassion to your parents. Because there's a lot of adults sitting in this room who never learned it. And now you need to repent for your sophisticated Lack of compassion on your own parents in your middle age and later life. Joseph, it's interesting to think about him here. That he chose the kindest option that was righteous. And then there's the whole way in which Joseph's righteousness comes out in his finances. Let us learn from Joseph how to please God through compassion and obedience, even when we are afraid and it disadvantages us financially. What about you? 
What kind of decisions do you make with your finances? Now, obviously, the devil's in the details. And obviously, the Bible is filled with commands to work hard and to be fiscally responsible. But it is also filled with stories like this, where we are challenged to manage our money according to God's financial plans and to be kind and compassionate and generous even to our detriment. Do you do that? Or is your financial security sacrosanct? For so many people, the American dream is to get the most money possible. To be financially secure. But here we see that the way of living as a Christian is not only to be prudent and financially responsible, but also to be obedient to God when it jeopardizes you and your American dream. Take tithing as an example. The Bible commands us to give 10% of our income to him through the church. That's a lot of money. 10%. For Janelle and I, that's a lot quicker upgrades to our house that is in serious need of repair. For Janelle and I, It's vacations that we can't take. Because we don't make enough money to do everything. For Janelle and I, it's clothes and restaurants. Now, not everybody is the 10% that, but I suspect that for many of us it is. But the Bible doesn't only command us to tithe. It commands us to be generous above and beyond our tithe, to give alms to the poor. To help people in need. And doesn't Joseph inspire us here? He's a great example of some things we'll hear from Jesus in his most famous sermon when it comes to how you handle your money and your possessions. And what about the area of your sexual behavior? Isn't that also wrapped up in this story? Joseph's righteousness shows up in his remarkable sexual restraint. I... I, I didn't mention it earlier, but let me point out something to you. Remember the Jewish practice when it came to engagement. You got engaged, you were married, but you weren't having sex. The girl still lived it with her parents. You were married though, and the only way to break it was divorce or death, but no sex. Then Mary gets pregnant. And notice what God commands Joseph to do through the angel. It's near the end of verse 20. Do not fear to take Mary as your wife. What does that mean? It means go to the next stage of the engagement. It means literally, literally go to her house, have a ceremony, take her back to your house. Look at the end of verse 24. He took his wife. That means that's it's technical. He went to her house. They did the ceremony. Now, we don't know if the community knows she's pregnant or not yet. We don't know any of that. But he takes her into his home. And what does it say in verse 24? But he did not know her. He did not have intercourse with her is what that means. Until she had given birth to a son. Now let's think about this. First, to state the obvious. Here are two virgins getting married. 
That's, that's the obvious in the text, right? That Mary was a virgin. The implication is that Joseph is. They practiced sexual restraint. They were teenagers who were not fooling around. This pleases God. It is difficult today to arrive at your marriage bed a virgin. But it pleases God to do that. It's a good thing. It is the best thing. It is the best gift you can give your future spouse. And it's possible. And this room is filled with people who did it. And teenagers, you can do it. And it will be wicked if you don't. And it will be righteous if you do. And it will please God. Do not have sex in any form before you're married. And get this, even when you are engaged. But we're going to be married. That's, that's at play here. Right at the heart of the, of the birth of Jesus is a strong sexual ethic. That's so obvious, we just need to sit with it. You displease God. When you have sex outside of marriage. Follow the example of Joseph and Mary. Save your virginity for your wedding night. And Mary and Joseph. They are not the only ones. So many millions since then. But there's one more angle to this sexual purity. Issue going on in this passage. He takes her home. They're poor. How big is this house? One room. How many beds are in this house? One, they are sleeping together most likely, and he doesn't touch her. Sexual restraint, not only in engagement, but after it's already legal, after it's already ethical. And she's now in the room with him, not just in the room, but every night they're going to bed together. And the scripture is clear, he did not unleash his sexual desires. Why? Why Why didn't he? It's not because it would have contaminated Jesus. The virgin conception has already occurred. In fact, look at verse 24. Look at Matthew 118, 1 verse 20. I'm sorry, verse 23. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. That's already been done. So why didn't he? Well, there's a lot going on here. So much more going on than we can get to. But an issue to sit with us is this. They controlled their sexual desires in the most intense temptation you can imagine. Can you imagine? They're both now a bit ostracized. You think it's hard not to fool around before you're married. What about in this situation? Men, women, and teenagers, we must control our sexual passions. We must. And we can. Do you? Are you righteous sexually? Is your imagination and your behavior holy? It matters to God. It pleases God when you do. Are you submitting and disciplining your sexual desires to God's plan? Is pornography a problem for you? Whether it's on a computer or in your fantasies. 
Are you disciplining yourself? The sexual ethic of God's kingdom is a prominent note in this passage. I'm sure you've noticed I've zoned in on family, on money, and on sex. That is where his righteousness played out. I didn't pick those up out of the blue. That's what me spending a week in Joseph's life where it happened. That's where his righteousness came out. It came out in the concrete pressures of family and money and sex. Are you righteous? Are you pleasing God? With your money, with your sexual behavior, with your compassionate role in your family. If you're not, repent. Ask God to forgive you. Own up to it. Tell him. Admit it. Not one of those weeny little, I'm sorry. But the full on owning up. And if you do, what are the two names of of the Messiah in this passage? Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus, God saves us. If you do, he will forgive you. He'll wipe it away. Don't try to do better to make up for your evil. Repent. Name it for what it is and put practical actions into your life that will lead to different behaviors. In any of those three categories. Now look again at God's word to Joseph through the angel. Do not fear. This is an important word for us too. Advent is a season of preparation. Of opening our lives more fully than ever before to receive Christ more deeply into our lives than ever before. Leveling the mountains. Raising the valleys. Making a straight and clear path for Christ to come powerfully into our lives. Now as we imitate Joseph. As we repent of our evil. And we practice righteousness. Let me just close with this. It will have a profound effect on how you think about your relationship with God each day. Of course, whenever we sin, we need to confess that sin and ask God's forgiveness at once. But very often, there are, very, there are people in this room who are walking in conscious obedience to God and to God's commands. And insofar as you are doing that, during those times when you are obeying God to the best of your knowledge, how should you think about God's relationship toward you? What should you think of his attitude toward you in those seasons and moments of obedience? You should be encouraged. You should know that he's pleased. 
See, the flip side of feeling bad about your bad behavior is you should feel good about your good behavior. You should know that God is pleased. Isn't it like this, parents, with your children? Aren't you pleased with them when they do as they should? And don't you want them to know that? Yes, I know you love them anyway. And we know that teaching from the Bible. That's not the teaching coming out of Joseph's life. That is the teaching coming out of other parts of this. But out of Joseph's life is how God is pleased when we obey. When you obey, you should walk with a smile. You get the privilege of knowing that your creator, your father, is pleased with you. So many of us, I think we push on original sin so much that we can never bring ourselves to know that the father is happy with us. Not just for because he loves us and his son, but when we obey, he's happy with us. That is throughout scripture. He takes pleasure in the good work. Of our lives. He takes pleasure in our sincere desire to obey Him. He takes pleasure in the increasing fruit of righteous hearts. In 1 Peter 2, verse 5, it says, God takes pleasure in our acts of obedience, that they are spiritual sacrifices rising up into the nostrils of God like a beautiful incense. Think about that. When you act with compassion, when you obey in your finances, when you have sexual restraint, think of that action as rising up to God like incense. And he smells it and he loves it. He loves it. He receives your behavior that is righteous as a sacrifice that pleases him. In Hebrews chapter 13 verse 21, God tells us that he takes pleasure when we do his will. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 verse 1, it tells us that God takes pleasure when we learn how to walk in the ways of his will. In 1 John chapter 3 verse 22, God tells us he takes pleasure when we keep his law. And he tells us in Matthew 25, verse 21, that on the day when Christ returns, he will look at our life. And what will he say? Well done. Well done. Good and faithful servant. When you pay your tithes, when you give alms to the poor. Teenagers, when you resist sexual temptation. Adults, when you resist sexual temptation. You need to know, you need to have the confidence that your father in heaven is saying, well done, well done, way to go. So at the end of the day, when you have sincerely sought to obey God, I encourage you, revel in his joy in you. He is pleased. Let's pray.